Welcome back to the Joseph Cox Show. The story of Parshat Balak is one of the most memorable in all of Torah. It is also the only Parsha told almost entirely from the perspective of others. Until the sins of Pinchas, nothing is from the perspective of the Jewish people or their forebears. In other words, this Torah reading is fundamentally empathetic. We live in the shoes of others. This is particularly striking because one of these people, the people of Midian, are genocided in the next reading. Rather than ignoring them as people, the Torah puts us in their shoes. There's a lot to learn here. At the beginning of this reading, the parties involved weren't even enemies, but Moab is struck by fear because of what Israel did to the Amorim. The war with the Amorim was justified even by modern perspectives. The Amorim came out to attack Israel, and Israel beat them in battle. It is what happens next that sets Moab off. The Jewish people then clear the Amorite cities and resettle them. The war was justified. It is the follow-up that leads to Moab being overcome with dread because of the children of Israel. From this porn perspective, the Moabites are farmers and the Midianites are more spiritual shepherds. The Israelites are barbarian horde who kills entire populations. The Israelites fear spread fear and disgust. As the text says, we are an ox which consumes the greenery of their field. We leave nothing for others to live on. These nations are legitimately frightened. In other words, no conflict was necessary, but Israel's actions, occupying land outside of the land of Israel, and thus signaling that their conquest was not a limited one, led to a conflict. And the conflict that was precipitated brought Israel down from the heights seen in Parshat Chukat. Before we get into the narrative, let's touch on the characters. First is Midian. Moshe's father-in-law Yitro was the priest of Midian. We know a few things about him. For example, despite his lofty position, his daughters were abused at the watering hole. This can speak to the treatment of women, but it can also speak to the treatment of priests. And then we have this. In Shemot, Exodus 18.11, Yitro says, Now I know that Hashem is greater than all the gods, Elohim, because in this thing he was presumptuous, Zadu, over them. The Elohim are the powers of the world. God showed he was greater than them. He controlled them and schemed with them. In other words, the world is made up of different forces. And in the, in the mindset of Midian, you can make one or two of them do what you want. Yitro converts because all of them work together, which speaks to an even higher power. But on the lower level, you see something else. Those lower level forces in the Midianite eyes can be manipulated. Gods are not there to lead. They are there as tools of man. Malak is the king of these people, and their attitude towards men of God is apparent from almost the very beginning of the story. So who is Bilam? Bilam's essence is captured in a phrase seemingly first used in reference to Avraham. Those who you bless are blessed, and those who you curse are cursed. But it's actually quite distinct. Avraham's phrase, the subject and the object, are reversed. Avraham doesn't bless people. Others are blessed because they bless him. He is passive. God is the actor. In Bilam's case, Bilam is the actor. This goes back to God's forces to be manipulated. Bilam decides who is blessed and who is cursed. But there is something else. On the curse side, in Hebrew, those who kalal Avraham are arur. But those who arur Bilam are arur. 
To klal is the opposite of to barech, or to bless. It means to reduce physical or spiritual potential. So those Bilam chooses to make a lesson of are made a lesson of, while those who choose to try to limit Avraham are made a lesson of. We'll see both threads in the upcoming Parshiot. Finally, coming to a bit of geography. In the first reading, we see that Bilam lives in a town along the river of his people. A town on a river is often a trading post. It could be other things too. The long green lines of the Euphrates speak to all human habitation being on the river. But his animal reinforces his nature. Bilam rides a donkey. A donkey is often a pack animal. While Moabites are farmers and Midianite shepherds, Balak represents a third type of person and not a praised one. His people are traitors. He is flexible. Whether Israel or Moab wins, Bilam wants to be open for business. The first time Balak asks for a curse, he asks for an auror, that the people be made a lesson of. But the second request is more limited. He asks for a kava, that the people be hollowed out. He is bargaining with Bilam, lowering his ask, and raising his payment. This is why Bilam can ask Hashem a second time. He has a different offer on the table. But the very nature of the offer suggests that Balak's people are there to manipulate God. They are there to buy Bilam's God manipulation services. We can see the manipulative attitude most clearly in the story of the donkey. Hashem is angry when Bilam goes, but why? It seems like Hashem gave Bilam permission. But the wording is important. Hashem says to Bilam, if the men call out to you to come, then you can go. But the men never ask Bilam to come. On behalf of Balak, they ask Bilam to go to me. Go is a command. Come is an invitation. If the police are arresting you, they'll be polite enough to say, please come with us. It is only when guns are drawn and force is being displayed that they say, get on the ground. Bilam is being ordered the same way Hashem orders Avraham, but in Bilam's case, the orders go the wrong way. The Midianites get the relationship backward and imagine themselves able to order divinity around. Because Bilam accepts it, he becomes a part of it. He earns divine shaming. Bilam's punishment is comedy gold. We literally laugh at him. He shamed Hashem, and so he is shamed. The Midianites tried to use him to arur Hashem, and he went along with it, and so he was arurred. Bilam agrees to speak only the words of Hashem, but he is a manipulator par excellence. As we'll see, he uses the words of God to completely undermine the people. Bilam's first parable is precipitated with seven altars, with seven bulls, and seven rams. Generically, bulls refer to nations. In a Jewish perspective, because of the story of Yitzchak, rams refer to the fear of God and contracts with God. But this isn't a Jewish perspective. The generic symbol of Baal is the bull, signifying strength and fertility. The symbol of Baal Hamon, the later Carthaginian Baal, was a ram. His additional symbolisms were as a moon or green god. There are lots of things we can derive from this with very little evidence. I'll pick just one. The bull represented strength and fertility, the ram represented natural cycles. The seven represented the importance of the occasion, just as the seven lambs offered by Avraham and Avimelech signified the importance of their treaty. Bilam is unifying different forces with his offerings, trying to find a weakness in the people. 
These offerings are brought at a high place of Baal, at Kiryat Chuzot, a place of division, chatzaz, to divide or to make have. The specific weakness being sought is a division between the people and God. What does Bilam say? How shall I hollow out whom God hath not hollowed out? And how shall I execrate those whom Hashem has not execrated? For from the tops of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him, lo, it is a people that shall dwell alone and shall not be lit into na- knit into the nations. I get the word, the translation for knitting from the Mishkan. Who has counted the dust of Yaakov or numbered the reproduction of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous, and let mine end be like his. We know through his words that Bilam tried to hollow out the people. It's unclear what Sa'am is, but it seems like it somehow undermines them for conquest. Bilam comes to understand that the nation stands alone. I read this as not following the limits of other peoples. The fates the Midianites know don't apply to them. The divine position cannot be adjusted. The last line is rhetorical. Hashem has counted the dust of Yaakov, and with the shekel we do did too, but nobody else can. The people cannot be limited by others. Finally, Bilam does suffer the rest of the death of the righteous. He is remembered more than anything else for the words of the Matovu. His words are carried forward by the people of Israel. Rather than being a failure in the cursing game, this parable serves Balak perfectly. It provides the first lessons in what he must do to defeat the people. He can't distance God from the people, and so he has to distance the people from God. He must knit the people into another nation so that they do not stand alone, and he must somehow mess with the, quote, number of reproduction of the people, perhaps by interfering with it. Balak complains, but Bilam says, I have to say what God tells me. We can read this as a rejection of Balak, but we can also read it as Bilam telling Balak to read between the lines. One of those lines is that God cannot be manipulated. With the second parable, we see the same offerings. This time they are offered at Tzofim, at the top of Pisgah. It is a prominent place that looks down on wealth. It is a spiritually important place. Safa, which is probably the root of Tzofim, means lookout, cover, or watchtower. What does Bilam say here? None hath beheld iniquity in Yaakov, neither hath one seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with them, and the shouting for the king is among them. God who brought them forth out of Egypt is for them like the lofty horns of a wild ox. This is like the nightmare Moab had at the beginning of the reading, the bull that licks up the land, and not the tame nation that follows the rules. For there is no enchantment with Yaakov, neither is there any divination, Kesem, with Israel. Now it is said of Yaakov and of Israel, What hath Hashem wrought? Behold a people that rises up as a lioness, and as a lion does he lift himself up. He shall not lie down until he eats of the prey. The word is treif, which now means the opposite of kosher. And drink of the blood of the slain, which of course is deeply prohibited in Judaism. The location is one of looking out from spiritual prominence. Bilam is looking for a spiritual weakness in the people. He finds none. There is no sin or perverseness. God is their power. Specifically, there is no enchantment or divination. The people are free of spiritual manipulation. Only the last line offers hope. The people will lay down when they eat treif and drink blood. They are linked like the bull and the ox. But Bilam is coming to a solution. The treif and the blood lend it. The people can be brought down when they sin. 
Balak tries to stop Bilam after this parable, but Balak isn't quite getting it yet, and Bilam refuses. He says, all that Hashem said to me, I have to say. There's another message here. There's an unspoken consequence if Bilam fails to do what he is obligated to do. And there's a consequence if the fee people fail to perform their obligations as well. The third parable is delivered at Rosh HaPeor, which looks down on the desert. The words used are the same as with Az Yashir Yisrael. The desert can also be translated as riches, as I translated it there. But instead of being looked down from Pisgah, Bilam is looking down from Peor. Peor means exposure. Bilam is seeking to expose a weakness. This time he doesn't try to manipulate God. He sees God, wants to bless the people, and so he looks towards the wilderness, lifts his eyes, and sees the people. His eye has opened. He has exposure. He recites the famous Matovu, how goodly are your tents. He points out that the family, acting within their tents, are the source of the people's power. And then he says a line I love. As valleys planted, as gardens by the riverside, as tents set firmly by the Thomas God, as cedars on the waters. The valleys of the Nachal, the spiritual waters of Israel, they are not planted normally, they flow, but here they are set into the land. And we have more contradictions, gardens by the river where they might normally be swept away, tents of the timeless God, bringing the temporary and permanent together, and cedars in the water where they cannot grow because cedars need drainage. Hashem enables these contradictions, the flowing and the planned made as one, gardens flourishing despite constant change, the temporary with the timeless, the deep roots of the cedar next to the flowing waters of constant change. We can live our temporary lives, but be part of forever. The next verse says, Water shall flow from his branches, or perhaps its doors, and his seed shall be in many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. Our waters, our spirituality, will spread into many others' waters. Agag means roof, the top of the world in a way. Our king is beyond that. And when the kingdom is exalted, it is the highest honor for our God as our ruler, not our manipulated power. The next verse, Hashem, the God of power in this case, who brought him forth from Egypt, is like for him like the lofty horns of the wild ox. Hashem is our weapon and part of us. He shall eat up the nations that are his adversaries and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. Here again we have a wild ox, but it is not curtailed. A non-wild ox is the representation of a nation. A wild ox is the representation of a wild nation. Precisely what Balak feared. The ox licketh up the grass of the field. The next verse. He couched, he lay down as a lion, as a, and as a lioness, who shall rouse him up? Blessed be every one that blesses thee, and cursed shall be every one that curses thee. This is the same epithet applied to Bilam. Arur, arur. There is no weakness here. At this point, Balak and Bilam break apart. But Balak has all that he needs. This time it comes from the beginning of the parable. How goodly are your tents. Combining the first three parables, we have a clear plan of action. Parable 1. Balak can't distance God from the people, and so he has to distance the people from God. 
Balak must knit the people into another nation so that they do not stand alone, and Balak must somehow mess with the number of reproduction of the people, perhaps by interfering with it. From the second parable, to create distance, the people must eat trafe and drink blood. They have to violate fundamental rules. And from the third parable, the tents, family life, are the source of their strength. From here it is a short leap to using women to lead the people away from their families and away from Hashem. Bilam has earned his pay, but Bilam is not done. He has a fourth and final parable. He predicts that the stars, the fates, will come from Israel. The fates won't determine Israel, quite the contrary. Israel will rule, and it will tear down its enemies and possess them. There is no protection. The age of Amalek and the rocks of Cani cannot protect them. The people can float in the waters and attack Ashur, which is far inland on a river. In essence, the spiritual waters of the people mean that nobody is safe. This final parable is a warning to Balak. You might have a recipe for bringing the people down a notch, but the results of your actions will destroy you. Balak dedicates the families of Moab to the mission of the nation. He uses the women to break down the people, and it works. In response to the sins, Hashem says to string up the leaders, and then Moshe to kill, says to kill those who join Baal. Nobody does anything. Only Pinchas follows both commands. He is not extra-legal at all, but as we can see next week, the damage has been done. No longer are the people governed by Hashem. Now they are governed only by the law of Hashem. Pinchas' actions, commanded by God, are no longer within the law. Fundamentally, the relationship Bilam described has been fractured. The parables are no longer true. Certainly Midian suffers, but fundamentally, we do too. All this unnecessary loss and destruction is caused by one thing. We occupied the cities of the Amorim. We caused our enemies to fear us when we had no designs on their lands or their people. As Moab and Midian talked and sent messengers to Bilam, our diplomats were nowhere to be seen. We did not head off an unnecessary conflict, and our example did not reassure. The relationships between our families, within our families, were strong, but the relationships with other peoples were very weak indeed. We can almost read Bilam's parables in reverse. If our spiritual waters flow, then our tents will be goodly, and our people will be blessed. If our spiritual waters do not flow, if our example does not inspire others, or at least leave them with an accurate understanding of our aspirations, then the heart of our relationship with Hashem can be fractured. As a final note, may the lives of those who have been lost in Surfside, Florida, Jews and non-Jews alike, inspire their families and communities. May their spiritual waters flow. May those who love them be comforted in this difficult time. Shabbat Shalom, and thank you for listening. Thank you.